me pray for us. Father, thank you uh, for a wonderful day. Uh, thank you so much for Cody's message on finding true rest. Uh, I, I was so encouraged and uh, so reminded. Uh, rest is found only in you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for your offer. And thank you for being so kind, so humble in heart, that being in a yoke right by your side uh, is not going to pull against me or chafe me or anything else, but you're so conscious and conscientious that I'm the one next to you. Um, you pull at a perfect pace. Uh, thank you for your great love and your great compassion and your great sensitivity to me and to all of my brothers and sisters out there. Uh, we thank you. We love you. And I pray that your spirit would be our teacher and our guide tonight, please, and we pray for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So I have two sons. The first one is an artist writer, right brain. The second one is a software engineer, left brain. And so, Stephen, a few years ago, a few years ago, uh, this was his interpretation of what the burning bush might have looked like. He probably did this when he was about three, maybe four. Okay, it wasn't quite that long ago. But anyway, his, you can see the bush and then you can see the flame around it. Uh, maybe, that might have been what it looked like. Anyway, that's his uh, interpretation of what that looked like. Uh, a couple of things I'm supposed to tell you. December 23rd, that's next Sunday, no class. I know. December 30th, no class. January 6th, no class. Yeah, now, if I catch any of you going to another church between now and January 13th, <laughs> I've got your uh, information on the name tag thing. Uh, we'll be back January 13th for Exodus 5 through 12. So we're going to take a few weeks off here over the break, and then uh, we'll be back, back to it. So that's Exodus, uh, or an overview of Next four, yeah, four weeks. So enjoy uh, Christmas with your families. I hope you uh, have a wonderful, wonderful Christmas. Uh, we'll see you next, next Sunday. We have church as normal, and we also have December 24th, which is Christmas Eve. We have a 1.30, 3, 4.30, 6, and 9.30 and that's just in the main auditorium. It's the same down the hallway except for 9.30. It's the same at West Campus except for 9.30. And there will be a 5 o'clock in Burleson, if you live down that direction, uh, at Centennial High School, Burleson Centennial High School, 5 o'clock, in the Performing Arts Auditorium, which is a thing. It is a thing. Marvelous place. Okay, I digress. What's new? Exodus. Let's do Exodus. The one word I put on the book of Exodus is simply this, redemption. Redemption. Big themes of Exodus, historically... This is another link in the chain of explaining how did we get here. Remember, I've suggested to you that Moses is standing on the uh, east side of the Jordan. He's ready to go over, but he's not going to be allowed to. And before they go over in the promised land, people are asking, how did we get here? The second generation is saying, how did we get here? How did we get right here? And so the Pentateuch partly is written to explain how did we get here, anchoring it way back in the work and the promises of God from Genesis, and then Moses leads them all the way up to the current place where they're about ready to cross over to the Jordan. How did we get from a family to a nation? Theologically, it portrays God's sovereign work of redeeming a people for himself through a deliverer. Right? You can see that in the book of Exodus. Practically, so how does it apply to us? 
telling us how to appropriately walk in the freedom of God's redemption, adoption, and fellowship, three big sub-themes of the book of Exodus, redemption, adoption, and fellowship. That should also sound familiar to you, redemption, adoption, and fellowship, and we'll unpack those as we go through Exodus. The basics, who wrote it? Moses, again, I contend. Moses wrote it, and I think that's what the scriptures teach in Deuteronomy chapter 1. When? He wrote it sometime between 1446 and 1406. Why do I say 1446? Uh Uh-oh, the crowd goes strangely quiet. What am I going to ask you at 2 in the morning when I call you? 1 Kings 6, 1, which says, Professor, this is so deflating. So deflating. The students don't remember the answer. 1 Kings 6, 1. Are you turning there now? And you recall that in the fourth year of Solomon's reign, which, because you've already made the notation out by 1 Kings 6.1, you wrote the year 966 B.C. That's the number you wrote right next to 1 Kings 6.1. And he says it was 480 years before that that the Exodus occurred. Some of you who are math majors, 966 plus... 400, right, add it up. What do you come up with? That's right, 1446. You don't have to wonder when the Exodus was. I don't care what the History Channel says. I don't care what National Geographic says. The Bible says the Exodus took place in 1446 B.C. Where is Moses writing this? Perhaps Mount Sinai maybe or probably the plains of Moab where he's probably collecting all this material and writing it down in its final version uh, while they're waiting to go across the Jordan River. And uh, one of my professors said this about why, you know, why Exodus. uh, To celebrate God's gracious deliverance of his chosen people Israel from Egyptian slavery to the freedom of covenant relationship and fellowship with him. So we're celebrating God's gracious deliverance from slavery into freedom in a covenant relationship and fellowship with him. Redemption, adoption, fellowship. If that sounds very New Testament to you, congratulations. It should. Redemption, adoption, In fellowship, the book of Exodus is going to talk to us about all three of those elements. Here's the big idea for tonight. God's called out one, Moses, must give God the last word and follow him in faith. God's called out one, Moses, must give God the last word. And follow him in faith. Giving God the last word. Any of you ever done that before? You gave God the last word? We had to learn that lesson. So here's part of our story of giving God the last word. My call to ministry took about three years not because God was obtuse, but because my head was filled with concrete. The first year, 1991, we're in our second home in Sacramento. Stephen is one year old. He was born in 1990. I came home from the rocket factory one day, went up to Laurie, and I said, I think God is calling me into full-time ministry. Her very godly and appropriate response was simply this. No, he's not. 
I thought, that's exactly right. What sense would that make? I wouldn't call me. I would call someone else, not me. So my conclusion was this. God may be calling, but I'm too old. At that time, I was 30. I'm too old to go back to school. I wouldn't call someone like me. And besides, people like me, engineers, God doesn't really use them in ministry. So people like me, on and on and on, right? God may be calling, but I'm too old. He doesn't use people like me, and I heaped on the, right, but this and but that and but the other thing. So a whole year goes by, year two. Whatever this thing is won't go away. Uh, I thought it would be a good idea to then sell the house. How else would we pay for such a journey to seminary? So I'm going to sell the house. So we put the house on the market. Uh, at least once, if not twice, we cut the price. Could not move that rascal to save anything. Laurie says, God may be calling, but whatever happens, she doesn't want to go pregnant. Seemed reasonable to me. The house didn't sell that summer, that sort of house season time. It didn't sell. We thanked God because we, he had kept us from making the hugest mistake of our whole entire lives. And they approached me about being an elder in our church. And I thought, that's what this is. Elders must feel this. Wow, that's really cool. So, uh, that happens. Year three. We get pregnant with Josiah in January. I am laid off the Friday of Memorial Day weekend, 1993. Why is that interesting? I started the Tuesday after Memorial Day in 1986. I'm laid off the Friday before Memorial Day in 1993. How many years is that? Do you think that might mean anything? Seven years to the weekend, my assignment is completed. Now, I didn't know that. I didn't want that. I sure didn't want to be laid off. Got laid off. Our only conclusion right now is, this is evidently God's time to go. That took three years. You're like, Bill, that could take two weeks or three weeks. I, I get it. This is way more about the concrete of my brain than it is about God. So I get laid off, and we're trying to figure out what do we do. God is kind of funny with this whole timing thing. Not only did we have to learn it, but someone else had to learn it. His name was Moses. God had said in Genesis 15, I'm going to leave you in Egypt for 400, 430 years, and then I'm going to bring you back. Look, 1 Kings 6.1 shows up again. 14.46. God's time is on the horizon. It is time to go get his people. His people are being persecuted. You remember from chapter 1, uh, eventually, verse 8, eventually a new king or new pharaoh came to power in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done. And he seems to be very fearful of how large a group the Hebrews are. And so they begin to appoint slave drivers hoping to wear them down or crush them. And they use them to build these cities and things like that. Um, it may have, but didn't, it may have looked like Charlton Heston in the Ten Commandments. It probably didn't, but it's still a great movie. You can watch that and sort of imagine what might have been happening. 
God's people are being persecuted. Huh. That's interesting. Do you think? God's time of deliverance is not always my time. I would have preferred God didn't let them endure any persecution whatsoever. But that's not the case. God's people are suffering. They're suffering persecution. This is a different generation of Israelites. This is a different Pharaoh. Acts 7, 18. I'll start in 17. This is Stephen's address to the Sanhedrin. As the time drew near when God would fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. But then a new king came to the throne of Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. This king exploited our people and oppressed them, forcing parents to abandon their newborn babies so they would die. This is a horrific and horrible time in the life and times of the Hebrew people. So a different Pharaoh comes to power who was not a good person at all. And there's a different attitude in the land. Instead of being thankful for Joseph and what he had done, they've forgotten all about that. The Pharaoh is persecuting God's people. He's having their midwives murder the newborn males. In fact, he's having the Egyptians drown the newborn males. Stop. We've talked about talionic justice before. Remember that? No. Talionic justice, remember when Jacob deceives Isaac? Remember how it, you know, Isaac's eyes are dark, so it's in the dark. How does he do it? Ears, smell, touch, taste. And then how does God, through Laban, discipline Jacob. He gives him Leah in the dark, right? The dark of the night in the tent. She must have been able to sound like Rachel, so he uses sound, smell, touch. Talionic justice. Jacob, if that's how you want to play the game, I can play. And as you've done, so I will do back to you. It's eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Meaning, if I break somebody's tooth, what should be required of me? A tooth and no more. It was a way of limiting the punishment. But it's a kind, in-kind punishment or discipline. With all that, having the Egyptians drown the newborn males, wonderful foreshadowing here. What is God's talionic justice going to be? You want to drown my children? I'm going to drown you. Which he does later on. Let's take a little parenthesis here. Here are some significant pharaohs of the Exodus period. This is not all of the pharaohs, and there's not even... Don't look, you know, I've skipped over some to get to some certain dates. All right, but these are some significant pharaohs of the Exodus period. First, Amosa I. He's roughly, uh, oh, why do I have Jacob on there? I don't know. I have to remember that. I don't remember why I put that on there. He's the first pharaoh of the 18th dynasty, and he expelled the Hyksos, who might have been Assyrians or Phoenicians or a combination, and returned Egypt to Egyptian rule. If you want some fun, read about the Hyksos. They actually had some interesting monotheistic kind of ideas, which was against what Egypt was teaching. Egypt had lots of gods. The Hyksos kind of said, you know, we think there's maybe one. Anyway, so he comes in the first pharaoh of the 18th dynasty, and he expels the Hyksos and brings Egypt back to Egyptian rule. 
And if you say, Bill, where are you getting this information? Good question. I love you students who want to know that from Cambridge, the Cambridge Ancient History, if you'd like to research all of these things. Cambridge Ancient History, which is one of, if not the reference you want to look at for these kinds of things. So Amosa one. Thutmose the first. He rules from about 1525 to 1512. Moses is born about 1526. Remember, all of these dates are approximate. We could be plus or minus 10 years. We shouldn't be plus or minus 100 years, but we could be plus or minus 10 years. So he has probably uh, just mm, come on the scene as soon as Moses is born. He's the third pharaoh of the 18th dynasty, and he's probably the pharaoh of the genocide. He's probably Thutmose of the first. Hatshepsut, a few years ago, you might have seen her uh, display at the, where was that, honey? At the Kimball. Amazing. Uh, she was the daughter of Thutmose of the first. She probably, again, probably drew Moses from the Nile and named him from Mosa is one born of and Mo is water, so one born of water or drawn from water might be how his name came about. Uh, she seems to have been the fifth pharaoh of the 18th dynasty. What? <laughs> I didn't know there was a woman pharaoh. <laughs> well, they gave her a beard. <laughs> Kind of hard to tell. <laughs> anyway, that was fascinating about that traveling exhibit. Um, there's people who think there are actually, there are perhaps more female uh, pharaohs, but Hatshepsut is guaranteed. Perhaps she drew Moses from the Nile. Thutmose III, 1504 to 1450, roughly, the sixth pharaoh, He's probably the Pharaoh of Exodus 2 from whom Moses fled. So when you read in there, you know, Moses fled and then God tells him the Pharaoh you feared is dead. Remember, there's time that elapses in all of these things and there's one or more Pharaohs who are coming and going during the time that Moses is out of town. So Thutmose of the third. Amenhotep the second reigned roughly 1450 to 1425, the exodus being in 1446. He was the seventh pharaoh. He's likely the pharaoh of Exodus 3 through 15, and he was the one who was divinely persuaded by the ten plagues to let God's people go. Amenhotep. You'll notice that Ramses is not among them, as the Ten Commandments would. Just don't listen to that part. It's probably... These are the pharaohs who had something to do with our Bible story. Back to the story. God's people are growing desperate. They're enslaved by a powerful pharaoh. They're unable to rescue themselves from his power and persecution. They're without hope apart from God. They're feeling an increasingly desperate need for deliverance. It's also the right time, according to God's timeline. So he calls Moses as his deliverer. And that's chapter 2 through chapter 4. Moses was prepared for this role. How? He seems to have been from a godly home. He had a premier education. He had a very bad failure. What did he do? Oh, yeah, he killed someone. And so he runs away for 40 years. Not four weeks, not four months, 40 years. I want you to imagine that. 40 years. Let's say Moses is 40 when all of this happens, which is roughly the case. From 40 to 80, Moses is off the scene. And he comes back 80 to 120. 
Isn't that amazing? Forty years of preparation in the wilderness to do what God wanted him to do. Do you think Moses ever went out there and went, well, I'm a throwaway. I'm done. God's never going to use me. Look what I've done. And I've run. And now I'm out here where no one knows where I am. Can you imagine? I mean, just Moses is a guy, right? He's just a human being. He has this wilderness experience. He doesn't know what's going on. But who does? God. And so your conclusion about Moses has to be he's not a superman. We try to make some of our Bible heroes, we try to make them into supermen. You know, they faster than a speeding bullet, and stronger than, what is it, stronger than steel or something, outruns a locomotive, more powerful than a locomotive. These, these men and women were not super beings. They were men and women just like you and just like me. And don't forget that. These are the people that God uses. He's not a superman, but an imperfect person, and he'd probably taken himself out of the race because of what he did. But God has been preparing Moses the whole time for what he's got for him to do. He gives Moses his call. He reveals himself to Moses, remember, in the burning bush that doesn't burn. He calls Moses into his service. He answers Moses' objections. And he gives Moses assurance. That's chapter 3 through chapter 4. Moses, like Mary, says, May it be to me as you will. Oh, no, that's not what Moses says. He reluctantly obeys He's been missing in action for 40 years. The bush that doesn't burn starts talking to him. I, what, what would you do? You know, you think, gosh, if, that, if, that, if I saw the burning bush, I know exactly what I'd do. I, yes, Lord, I'd just fall down on my... i go, no, you wouldn't, and neither would I. I'd be doing what Moses does. Well, I'm not going. <laughs> Don't do this to me. No, thank you. Imagine telling God, no, thank you. Well, that's what Moses does. golly, it's just crazy. I just think the Lord is so kind and so patient, but he even gets a little bit tired of (laughs) Moses' stuff. But Moses reluctantly obeys, right? What does he say? I can't even speak well. Stephen, in the book of Acts, does not say that. He says, Moses was eloquent of speech. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh, Moses, nice try, Moses. But God made your mouth. You're not fooling God. He knows that you can speak well. It's just more stuff Moses is throwing at God. He does not want to do this. So God has called Moses. Moses reluctantly obeys, but he does go. Uh, he, he's revealed his name. He's revealed his promises to Moses. He's said, all right, take Aaron with you. You'll be his God. You'll, you know, Aaron will be you, and you go speak to the Pharaoh. God does not back up from what he wants. And he's going to continue to persuade Moses that he needs to do this. So, let's make some observations. Moses reluctantly obeys. It's just, I just got to go back to this. This is too funny. This is our Bible hero. I want you to get this in your mind. This is our Bible hero. He's not a, I don't know what's out these days. You know, there's always a superhero movie. You know, we're, do you understand that America right now is looking for heroes? And so that's why all these superhero movies, we're looking for heroes. Because we've destroyed every other hero we've ever had. But our heart says we need a hero. We need an American hero. You understand what I'm saying? Just kind of. Take the pulse of culture. Culture is looking for a hero. You would never pick Moses. You go, oh my gosh, look at Moses. No, (laughs) you wouldn't pick Moses. 
Moses has killed someone. He's run off to the desert, and God comes to him and says, hey, come with me, Moses. I got this great assignment for you. No, thank you, Lord. (laughs) Send someone else. This is not a guy you would pick to be the hero. God changes him into the man that we know, but he didn't start that way. So some observations. Moses is struggling with God's will. God's will pressed Moses to make a choice. How did Moses respond? First, he asked questions about God. Who are you, Lord? Now, he might not have known. It's been a long time since God has appeared to his people, so the first one might be legitimate. Second, he resisted by throwing up obstacles. But they won't believe me. And excuses. But I'm not gifted. Third, he outright refuses. Remember, he says, send someone else. Fourth, he dragged his feet, but reluctantly went. This is our Bible hero. Much like you, and very much like me. Year three of our sense of calling. It's May 1993. Laurie is pregnant with Josiah. About five months worth. I'm laid off on this Friday. I go home. I am not happy. I am very sad. I do not know what God is doing. All I know is they've given me a few weeks of severance. uh, And... After that, we're going to have to figure out what to do. So I decide, hmm, well, I'm going to have to sell the house. It wouldn't sell the year before. Why would it sell now? Because the real estate market at this particular point in California's history has already gone over the top. It had gone over the year before. We just, no one knew it. It had gone over the top, and so we're now into year two of home values going down. So we owed more on our house than we could sell it for. That's really not a good thing. Uh, So the house sold within the month. It might have been 10, it might have been 11, it might have been 15, but it was within the month. (laughs) She probably remembers that it was 10 days. I'm laid off. I've got a few weeks of severance. I now have a pregnant wife who is, by the way, wondering what God is doing, because she only had one requirement for God. If we're doing this, I'm not going pregnant. As I recall, it was more of a statement than a request. We're pregnant. I'm laid off. We have to put the house on the market. It sells almost immediately. And then they said, well, you owe more on the house than it's worth. You know, so what are you going to do? And so I wrote a letter and said, hey, I got laid off. Sorry. And the bank said, okay. It's kind of how we felt, too. So I've got a few weeks' worth of money. I've got no savings because we'd use that to buy our homes. I have no money, my plan. I have no money from the sale of our house to fund my seminary escapade. I have no job lined up in Dallas. I have a one-year-old, and at that time, a five- or six-month pregnant wife. God's will is pressing me to make a choice. Yes? Well, we're going. So, year three in August, Laurie's parents mercifully and graciously generously flew her to Dallas with Stephen 
And by August, she would be how many months pregnant? Eight. Eight. Um, we arrive in Dallas. She gets there on August 1st or 2nd, and I get there on the 2nd or 3rd. I'm a day late because my father uh, had flown out to Sacramento to drive the moving van with all of our stuff and tow our car from Sacramento to Dallas. My father has come out, A, to be helpful. B, he's pretty sure I'm in a cult. (laughs) And it's his job as my father to talk some sense into me. You're trained as an engineer. What the heck do you know about being in the ministry? Do you understand how hard that is? You don't get paid anything. Who would do this? What's wrong with you? You have a good engineering degree. Just get a job. I said, Dad, uh, I've been called into the ministry. And he's like, yeah. So we drive to Dallas. We unload. Uh, I start seminary. I have no job. Uh, Josiah is coming soon. And I have... One month of money in the bank. I can pay for August with the expenses that I can foresee. September 1st, I have no means of support. None. No job, no savings, no retirement. To ca- I got nothing. Do you know, I, I got nothing. Right? You with me now? What do I have? Nothing. But I have an eight-month pregnant wife. And I have a one-year-old, and those rascals somehow, for some reason, want to eat. It's crazy. So, you think, gosh, Bill, that doesn't seem like you. It isn't. Back in the summer, I ha- my aunt and uncle lived in Dallas. And I thought, hmm, I'll... Now, remember, there's no email in these days. Or, or, well, if there is, I don't have it. Uh, so I thought, well, I'm going to snail mail my aunt and uncle and say there's got to be some churches in Dallas who would hire me, right? I mean, that's what churches do. So my aunt writes back and says, um, you know, here's a list of seven churches, and so why don't you write them and, and just see? I don't know, but maybe. So here's the letter I write them. Hi, my name is Bill. I've been a rocket scientist for seven years. God is calling me into ministry. I need a job at your church. You know, here's my address. Please write me back. As you can imagine, guess how many letters I got back? (laughs) Zero. But I tried. I tried. So we get to Dallas, and the first two weeks, I'm starting seminary. I'm loving life. I'm thinking, we're dead. I got no job. The only thing I can find is interstate battery, which is a wonderful thing. Um, But it was a part-time job. It wasn't going to pay the bills, and I I knew it. Well, a letter shows up uh, that had gone to Sacramento and followed us back to Dallas. It just took a little while for it to, remember how the mail used to do that? You know, and get forwarded and take a few days to go from, okay. Shows up, and the letter was from a wonderful church in Dallas, and they said, we got your letter. And I thought, oh, great. Okay, we got the letter. I finally get a letter back. It's not going to be good. So I opened it and said, um, we have one opening for a seminary student in children's ministry. If you would like to talk to us about that, we would love to hear from you. Here's a telephone number. And I said to the Lord, Lord, you remember the deal we had. Um, I can do adults. I can probably do college. When it gets to the pie in the face and stuff in high school and junior high, that's just not me. We have this agreement. I'm not doing students. And by the way, I've got an eight-month pregnant wife and a one-year-old. We had this agreement, remember, that I'm not going to do children's ministry. Another week goes by. Guess what my job prospects look like? 
zero. And I'm trying. I finally think, well, maybe I won't have to stay in children's ministry, but maybe I could get on and maybe something would happen. So I call the church up. I go have an interview with the children's minister. Who knew we just hit it off? She hires me, and she says, let's establish your start date, September 1st. After I got there, we went in and chatted. Her name is Nancy. And Nancy said, you know, it's the weirdest thing. Um, The reason that job was open is because the lady who had been doing it uh, quit. And I said, I'm sorry she quit, but I'm really glad she quit. And she says, you know what's really interesting? She quit last summer, too. Remember the summer we're trying to sell the house? And it won't sell? She quit last year for about three days and came back and I gave her her job back. She quit this time. And I said, you're not coming back. And she said, I had already hired someone to fill her role. We were already closed and past the deadline by the time you called me. I just thought I'd chat with you and see what was what. So she actually called someone else back and said, I'm sorry, you're unhired. I'm giving the job to this guy. Crazy. So I start there and worked there for, it took me five years to do my four-year degree. I'm very smart and fast. It took me five years to get through this thing. Year three in September, Josiah is born wonderfully. Um, We may have been on Cobra a little bit, but I saw not one bill. Not one. And yes, Laurie did not give birth in the backyard. She went to a hospital. I barely made it, but she was there. Not one bill did we ever see from that birth. Uh, five years later, in May of 1998, I graduate from seminary with not one dollar of seminary debt. The Lord provided the entire thing and all of our living expenses. No way should all of this have worked, but it worked. And so five years later, we said, thank you, Lord, to no job. Some friends of ours who had left from that church and moved to Fort Worth, found Christ Chapel. I was graduating. They said, the most horrible thing has happened here. They lost their executive pastor. You should apply. And I said, that's ambulance chasing. I'm not going to do that. So they said, well, what you need to do is send us your resume, and we'll give it to Ted. And I said, what's a Ted? They said, just do it. So I sent it. Ted very graciously calls me one business day later. This was our conversation. This is not exactly verbatim, but it's so close as to virtually be verbatim. You know what verbatim means, right? Word for word. It's seared in my brain. You'll see why, okay? Ted calls me. Bill, Ted Kitchens, Christ Chapel. I said, Ted, thank you so much for calling me. He said... Got your resume. Wonderful. I'm glad it arrived. You are applying for the role of executive pastor. A horrible thing has happened here at Christ Chapel. We've lost our executive pastor, a very good friend of mine, and the church is emotionally not in any way ready to hire an executive pastor. Short little pause. And besides that, you're too young. You're going to thump me, buddy? I'm not getting this job anyway. I got nothing to lose. Yes, this is in me. I said, excuse me, sir. This is my first conversation with Ted. Excuse me, sir. The issue is not age, as I read in the New Testament and Timothy. 
The issue is one of gifts, abilities, education, etc., of which I have, and I can do this job. The question is, this is our very first conversation. Do you understand what this is? The question is, will you trust me to do it? This is our very first conversation. Long pause. <laughs> Imagine Ted speechless. Well, anyway, he says, well, anyway, he said, we've started this new thing here called Life Stage Pastors. And what interests us about you for Life Stage 3 is your time in children's ministry. <laughs> Would you come talk to us? The rest, as they say, is history. I was the worst hire they ever made for Life Stage 3. About six months later, they moved me over to executive pastor. Uh, but I'm, I tell you this long, drawn-out story to tell you, give God the last word. Moses gave God the last word, even though he reluctantly went like I did. God knows what he's doing all the time, and nothing he's doing will be wasted. You may not see it through the windshield, but you'll see it in the rearview mirror, what he's doing. I love this story because the, there's even more parts that I left out that are even more stunning and amazing, not about me, but about God and how carefully he plans, how thoroughly he plans to take care of his people, us, as he did in the Old Testament, so he's done in the New Testament in our lives. Did you know Christians are God's called out ones today? In fact, the Greek word ekklesia means the called out ones. Some of you who are used to my previews know where this is going. Christians are God's called out ones today. God has substantially revealed his will for our lives through his word. God expects us to give him the last word in every situation today, just as he did with Moses. Struggling with God's will is okay. But the bottom line question is this, will you walk by sight or by faith? At the end of the day, sometimes it's hard to put yourself in Moses' shoes. Put yourself in my shoes. What would you have done? Would you have gone? Would you have stayed? We have been on an amazing journey. And it can, that's not the only time God has shown up in our lives. And some people think, well, that's because of what you do. I had one guy, I told the whole story, and I'm telling you the whole story takes about an hour and a half. It's so funny and so long. <laughs> Everyone falls asleep, but this guy didn't. <laughs> and he walked up to me at the end, and he, he's weeping. And he says, I would cut off my right arm if God would have intervened in my life once, the way he has multiple times. In your life and I said I'll bet he has you just haven't been pushed into the position of having to look for it but I'll bet you he's done it in your life and I'll bet you he's done it in all of your lives and if you just sit down and rewind the little movie of your life I bet you'll see these kinds of things in your life and do you know what encourages people most these kinds of stories where God has met you, not your friend, not your aunt, where he's met you. And you, you tell the story so that they go, oh my gosh, I don't know what I would do in that situation. Good. That's where you were. And even if it was reluctant, you went. Are you going to walk by sight or are you going to walk by faith? There were a hundred times when we were in Dallas. There's been a thousand times since we've been here where we weren't quite sure how, which direction do we step. Do we go this way? Or do we go this way? You pray, and at the end of the day, you say, I'm going to walk by faith. And you, put, you step. You step forward. 
Are you going to walk by sight, meaning I see how all this works, or are you going to walk in faith? I don't see how all this works. Big idea. God's called out ones. That's you and me must give God the last word and follow him in faith. How Moses responded to God's word, he questioned God about it. He made excuses and threw up obstacles. He refused it, then dragged his feet in following it. How do you respond to God's word? Do you neglect it? Do you ignore it? Do you rationalize it? Or justify not doing it? Do you pick and choose what you're going to obey? Or wait until there's a more convenient time? Or do you give God the last word and follow him? How do you give God the last word? Move your butt. For those who are listening right now, they just think I said something that I didn't say, but you can see it on the screen. <laughs> but is spelled with one T, not two. Move your butt. I'm telling you, this will stick with you. Move your butt. From, now see if you hear anything from me in 1991. From, I know God has said, but... There are problems and issues. God might be calling, but he doesn't call people this old. He doesn't call engineers. He doesn't do those sorts of things. Change it to, there are problems and issues, but I know God has said, move your butt. Walk by faith in God, not by sight. We're all tempted to walk by past experiences, by feelings, by circumstances. We have to walk by faith in God, not by sight. And if you heard Cody's message this morning, who are we, well, if we get in the yoke for rest, who are we walking next to? Jesus. Does Jesus know where he wants to go? Yes. Does he know where he wants to go with you? Yes. Is he going to tell you ahead of time? Let's say no. And so when you feel chafing in the yoke, guess who it is? Is it Jesus? Let's say again the answer is no. He's walking you in a direction that he wants to take you that you don't understand yet. I didn't want to be in children's ministry. Not because I don't like children. I didn't want to be in children's ministry. What did God choose and know ahead of time to get me where he wanted me to go? He knew what he needed to put in place. He knew the stepping stones that needed to be there. He's doing the same thing in your life that he's done in mine. I am not special. Well, truly, I am special, but that's a subject for another day. <laughs> He's put the same stepping stones into your life to bring you to the place you are. And guess what? Unless you're in heaven right now, and let's say again, no, then there are still stepping stones he's putting in front of you to continue to walk with him. And you don't know how today or yesterday or tomorrow is going to factor into that. But it will. Give God the last word. He knows what he's doing. Walk by faith in God, not by sight. How about in daily obedience? Walk by faith, not by sight. What if you're in a storm right now? Or in a prison? You know, the problem with the storm is um, all you seem to hear is the sound of pounding rain crashing waves, wherever the prison is, or wherever the storm is. That's all you hear. What do you need to hear? God's voice through God's word. So if you can still hear the rain and the thunder and the crashing of the waves or whatever you want to imagine for being in the storm, get back in the word and listen because God is always speaking 
you've experienced it and so have I. You're like, I don't know where to turn in the Bible. And so you just open it. And mysteriously enough, it usually leads you very quickly to a place that will bring you comfort, peace, rest, direction, solace. Because he brings you, he's like, I'm in the yoke. Remember, he's so tired, he falls asleep in the boat in the storm. And the disciples, what are the disciples doing? Panicking. What did they forget? The boat isn't going to sink with Jesus in it. Not going to happen. The boat is not going to sink with Jesus in it. The disciples should have said, you know what? This boat isn't going to sink with this guy in the boat. We're good. Seems kind of stormy, but the boat isn't going to sink with this guy in it. What do we start paying attention to? The wind, the waves, the crashing. The boat's doing this. Jesus is still asleep. Guess what? The boat's not going to sink with this guy in it. It didn't for the disciples, and it won't happen for you. Maybe you're in a storm, or you're in a prison. Where do your eyes need to be fixed? On Jesus. Not on the storm. Not on the walls or the bars. Your eyes need to be fixed on Jesus. How about in serving him? Some people are, they kind of talk like Moses. Um, you know, look at my past. Or, I'm not gifted enough. Truth is, God has already been preparing you to serve. Everyone says, gosh, what should I do? What ministry should I do? What are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> Because maybe that's what he wants to use for your ministry. And you say, well, that ministry doesn't look like your ministry. Hallelujah. What ministry has he brought you to the place of doing? Don't be like Isaiah or even like uh, Moses. Send someone else. Right? Moses says, send someone else. What does Isaiah say? Here am I, Lord. Send me. Give God the last word and step forward in faith. God's called out ones must give God the last word and follow him in faith. For next time, read Exodus 5 through 12. We'll start into the plagues. That'll be a fun read, and we'll have some fun with the plagues. The plagues weren't fun, but we'll have some fun talking about the plagues. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the example of Moses, who, though reluctant, he walked by faith and not by sight. And thank you for you, because you were so patient, so kind, so gentle, and you did amazing things beyond what Moses could have imagined for his life. You used him so powerfully for good in his generation. Uh, thank you for the way that you do that for all of us. Uh, but we thank you for the way you treat uh, your called out ones. Moses being a great example, but you've also called us called out ones. And so... Uh, we ask you to use us and uh, help us to walk by faith and not by sight. Uh, even if we feel like we're in a storm or we're in a prison, we've seen you do amazing things in both situations, uh, not only in our own lives but in the scriptures. Help us to focus our eyes, fix our eyes on Jesus. Please do that. I pray for my brothers and sisters that this would be the best Christmas they've had yet, that there would be uh, relationships that are reconciled and deepened. I pray that there would be uh, new friends uh, who are made, that this would be a wonderful, rich season of worship. Uh, your word, Revelation, demands, not the book of Revelation, but just you revealing yourself and your word to us. Revelation demands a response, and that response is worship. And so may we worship you uh, over these next couple of weeks uh, better, deeper, uh, from the heart, more than we ever have before. 
uh, because uh, we recognize just a little bit more your great love for us. We love you and say uh, please to all of these things. In Jesus' name, amen.